Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible Berry Chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Li Pingchen, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Ken Zhiyan Sun about his new book, Time and Migration. How Long-Term Taiwanese Migrants Negotiate Later Life. This book was published by Cornell University Press in 2021. Based on longitudinal ethnographic work on migration between the United States and Taiwan, Time and Migration interrogates how long-term immigrants negotiate their needs as they grow older and how transnational migration shapes later life transitions. Sun develops the concept of temporalities of migration to examine the interaction between space, place, and time. He demonstrates how long-term settlements in the United States, coupled with changing homeland contexts, has inspired aging migrants and returnees to rethink their sense of social belonging, remake intimate relations, and negotiate opportunities and constraints across borders. The interplay between migration and time shapes the way aging migrant populations reassess and reconstruct relationships with their children, spouses, grandchildren, community members, and home, as well as host societies. Aging, Sun argues, is a global issue and must be reconsidered in a cross-border environment. Right, so that's about the book. And Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Right, so uh, I was wondering, Ken, um, can you start the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself and also your research interests? Sure. Um, I'm currently assistant professor of sociology and criminology at Villanova University. I study aging, globalization, migration, families, and inequalities. Uh, Before I moved to the United States, I worked in Hong Kong for about four years. All right. Sounds good. Thank you for sharing. And then, um, so uh, we're interested in terms of how you start this book project. Any inspiration or a field work that you would like to share with us? Sure. So I remember when I was a grad student, I struggled to find an interesting topic to study. I want to write a good dissertation, but I don't really know what to write about. I tried several ideas. I went through, um, I talked to my advisor, I talked to my professors, different mentors at grad school, but none of them seemed very promising. And then I read uh, Sarah Lynn's book about aging in India and aging within Indian American families. So I realized, well, aging is something I can study. And so, um, and here's the thing, when I arrived to the U.S., an immigrant families very generously host me and they treat me like their children. So I, through then, I, I make a lot of Taiwanese immigrant friends and I know a lot of Taiwanese American families and many of them are older people. But back then, I did not know how old they, they were. Um, 
But after reading Sarah Lynn's book, I realized that oh, this is something I can do, and I have access to potential participants. So I decided to, I decided to study older people, and so this is how the project started. Thank you, Ken, for sharing the、uh, stories behind the scene about your、uh, graduate studies, but also your personal experiences as well. And so, I guess the next question will be about:、uh, you say a little bit about this kind of、uh, the aging、uh, migrants as a subject of study in your book. But can you tell us a little bit more about why、uh, migrants from Taiwan, and particularly the aging population、um, there? Sure.、Um, why do I study migrants from Taiwan? Many people assume that is because I am from Taiwan too. That that is the reason, but that is not the the real reason for、uh, why I study older Taiwanese migrants. Here's the thing: U.S. government changes its immigration policy in 1965. After 1965, migrants.、Uh, Can bring their families to the can can sponsor their families to move to the U.S. So many immigration scholars argue that the large scale immigration after 1965 transformed the social and cultural and demographic landscape of the United States. And right now we are in 2022. The thing is, if you move to the U.S. in the night in the 60s or 70s. Right now, those immigrants are already entering a later life stage. Then, what happened to these older people? We don't really know. So, I think that study, studying older migrants who are long-term residents in the U.S. is very important because many of them have lived in.、Uh, Two thirds of them have lived in the U.S.、Uh, for more than thirty years. And why do I focus on Taiwan? Because. In the sixties and seventies, China was largely closed,、um, in part because of the Cultural Revolution. In addition, because the PRC government did not re-establish the diplomatic ties to the U.S. until late seventies, so most migrants from mainland China have a hard time. Relocating to the U.S. legally. That is why many Chinese migrants or Han Chinese migrants in the U.S. in the 60s and 70s are mostly from Taiwan or Hong Kong. So I think that a focus on Taiwanese migrants enable me and other scholars to see the interplay between time, temporalities, space, and place. And how those older migrants who are long-term residents in the U.S. transform ideas about home, about aging, and about different types of intimate relationships in their everyday life. Yeah, thank you, Ken, for sharing with us, and also specifically about the different moments in the immigration history to the United States, and especially the Han Chinese migrants before 1965, and also after that moment of time.、Um, with this、uh, um, critical moment, 1965, I was wondering, Ken, can you tell us a little bit about the、uh, Chinese? Uh, immigration to the United States.、Uh, there is also the Chinese Exclusion Act, and then later on, you know,、uh, now we are 1965, and now currently 2022. So I'm wondering, can you give us some of、uh, overview about this different moments in the immigration history? Sure. After 1965, one defining,、uh, you know, during Chinese Exclusion Act, it's really. It's virtually impossible for Chinese migrants to bring their families to the U.S. And contemporary Chinese migrants and Chinese diaspora is very, very different from the Chinese migrants coming to the U.S. during the、uh, the end of nineteenth century or early twentieth century, right? Because the defining feature of contemporary Chinese migrants 
is hyperselectivity. What Jennifer sociologist Jennifer Lee and Minzo call hyperselectivity, the double educational advantages Chinese migrants、uh, have. That means they are better. Many Chinese migrants in the U.S. are better educated than non-migrants in the homeland. They are also better educated than the average American public. So, if we think about with this hyperselectivity in mind, many Taiwanese migrants they are actually very well educated. They are better educated than people in in Taiwan, and they are also better edu better educated than American public here. Not to say I'm not saying that all the Taiwanese Americans, all the Taiwanese immigrants are well educated, but the majority of them are. And this hyperselectivities deeply shape how they are. Are、uh, being incorporated into the social and cultural landscape、um, in American society, and I also want to emphasize this educational selectivity has a lot to do with U.S. immigration policy because after 1965, the U.S. immigration policy prefer and privilege、uh, migrants with advanced degree with、uh, better, higher social economic status. Right, and then、uh, as you mentioned, this hyperselectivity in terms of their education and also in terms of their、uh, professional backgrounds. So many of them, as you mentioned, are professionals, and、um, in terms of their、uh, you know background and also in terms of their training as well. And、uh, with this education or this higher degree of education, no background, and this kind. Partly contribute to their mobility as well, so they're able to come to the United States. And、uh, I guess later、uh, we will discuss as well.、Uh, they're also traveling、uh, across the Pacific as well, Taiwan, United States. And、um, so with that,、um, I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about your、uh, respondents? You interview、uh, many of the.、Uh, Uh, Long-term aging migrants in your book. So, can you tell us a little bit about、um, some of the backgrounds, their age, occupation, and then the reason they、uh, came to the United States? Sure.、Uh, the age of my respondents in the U.S. and in Taiwan. I study older migrants who stay here. I also interview older migrants move back to Taiwan after retiring from work. Their age ranges between. Sixty-four, sixty-five to late eighties. When I interviewed them for the first time, I I conducted repeated interviews with my respondents、uh, over a long period of time. They came to the U.S. through different、uh, trajectories. Many of them arrived to the U.S. as international students, so they came to the U.S. like me. They came to the the United States as they they came to the United States as student migrants. So they receive education,、uh, and they establish a career. They raise their families here. Their educational qualifications in the U.S. enable them、uh, to enter the middle class or professional class in the in、uh, in the U.S. much much more easily. On the other hand, some of my respondents arrived to the U.S. not as student migrants; they they came here as labor migrants or through family sponsorship. So for these migrants, their migration trajectories are much much harder. They、um, they have to work most of most of the time. They need to accept a blue collar job, and then they save money. They try to Understand the society and try to find new career paths in the U.S. For migrants who arrive to the U.S. as blue-collar workers or as、um, or through family sponsorship, their life in general are much much harder, much much more hard, much much harder than those who arrive to the U.S. as student migrants. All right, and、uh, thank you for introducing this kind of diversity of their background. As you mentioned, some of them are student migrants, some of them are labor migrants, and some of them、uh, arrive、uh, 
or I should say sponsored、uh, by the family and arrived here、uh, in the United States. So、uh, I remember you also uh, uh, you interview both the male and female、uh, migrants in your book, and then I was wondering, can you tell tell us a little bit about? Did you see、uh, whether gender?、Uh, Play a role in terms of their experience in the United States, or their experience in terms of their、uh, this kind of transnational and transpacific、uh, connection to Taiwan. Sure,、um, I interview couples because I try to understand how older migrants negotiate spousal relations and other family relations in and through their everyday practices. Gender plays a significant role in the ways in which older migrants negotiate family lives. For example, in my book, I found that many of my respondents are trying to figure out how to "quote unquote" do grandparenthood, i.e., how they try to how they negotiate how they should negotiate relationships with their children and their children's families,、uh, growing up in the U.S. And gender is very important because I I realize that older men and older women devise different strategies to do grandparenthood. Older men play with the grandchildren, take care of the grandchildren, but older women actually do a lot of more dirty work. Right, for example, cleaning the diaper, right, feeding, bathing, cleaning the baby. So. Men and women's experiences at earlier life stage pave way for how they take care of their grandchildren at a later life stage, and also realize women and men have different relationships with their children. For example, many immigrant women emphasize that they will never want to become a burden to their children because they were caregivers themselves. They don't want to create additional responsibilities for their children because they know that taking care of another person, nurturing another person,、um, especially when they are sick, is very very difficult. I also witness a lot of more conflicts between older immigrant women and their daughters-in-law. And I think that is in part because gen,、uh, care work is deeply gendered, right? So older women try to step in and help. And to be frank, these younger generations desire and need the help of the older migrants. But the thing is, because care work is so intimate and so delicate, so that also produces a lot of gender conflicts between and among women. Another thing is that.、Uh, In, this is for family life. In public life, I also found gender plays a very significant role. Many immigrant men, especially after they retire from work, they try to、uh, be a leader or be more active in immigrant organizations. So many of these older immigrant men are in the leadership positions of immigrant organizations. So I keep wondering why they. Try so hard and spend so much time, put in so much work in immigrant organizations. Why don't they make the same effort to the "quote unquote" mainstream American organizations? Then I realized that that probably has something to do with the fact that they are marginalized in American society. It also has something to do with that they have stronger emotional bond and attachment. To their homeland, as and their and their homeland hometown associations. So I think that all these phenomena speak to the social construction and my respondents' understanding of masculinity and femininity. So I do think that gender play a very important role、um, in understanding the lives of older migrants. Yeah,、I、totally agree with you, and especially in terms of how femininity and also masculinity is constructed, constructed socially and also culturally. And here you mentioned that there are different dimension, particularly for household, how labor is being divided, in terms of care work and also the relationship with their、uh, children. And you also mentioned with their.、Uh, Um, children's spouses as well. This different understanding and different interaction、uh, with them, and also with the、uh, their children. 
and you mentioned also this kind of involvement or uh, this uh, uh, commitment to the community organization, specifically about immigration, about their place of origin as well. And uh, with this, and then to think about their uh, experience and also their life, uh, I mean, long-term here in the United States, and then some of them decided to go back to Taiwan. So I guess now uh, it, I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about what is temporalities of migration? So what's the concept and also some of the framework and maybe also inspiration for this concept? Sure. Um, thank you for asking me this question. So this is the key concept, actually, actually the anchoring concept for my book. I studied long-term migrants so I basically look at the lives of older migrants who spend most of their working years in the U.S. and they left their homeland at a very young age. So in the process of finishing up this book, I continue um, to grapple with how to centralize time onto my analysis. And before I finish my book, I realized that uh, I come up with the concept of temporalities of migration to unpack to unpack the complicated me complicated functions time uh, has on my immigrant on my respondents' life. For the concept of temporalities of temporalities of migration, I pay attention to three specific dimensions. First experiencing life transitions in more than one society. For example, becoming parents, becoming grandparents, or retirement. And I try to understand how my respondents experience and make sense of these life transitions in, in a transnational context. Second, temporalities of migration also involve cross-border socialization. As we move to a new society, we often experience loss, right? Many of us feel like, oh, we experience downward occupational mobility. We can no longer have the previous jobs we used to have. We cannot speak the, our native language. We transition from racial majority to racial minority. But we also learn and gain new lessons and new knowledge and new identities in the process of international relocation. Many of us learn English. We make new friends. We acquire new racial and ethnic memberships. We are socialized in different ways. So I think that understanding this cross-border socialization, i.e. how migrants are socialized in their homeland and how migrants are socialized in their new society is very essential to understanding how these migrants negotiate life transitions. Finally, the concept of temporalism migration also involves the development of their homeland and hostland, i.e. the changing transnational environment. Let me give you one example. When my respondents left Taiwan, Taiwan was still, that's 60, 70. Many of them told me that Taipei back then was a, a agricultural place. The society in general is underdeveloped. I left Taiwan in 2005 and I grew up in the 90s. So basically, I grew up in the context the economic situation in Taiwan already took off. So I have no idea uh, about the agricultural society my respondents were talking about. And when my respondents left Taiwan, Taiwan offers very little social protection to citizens. But, at, but since mid-90s, Taiwan has developed a lot of different public benefits programs. And because Taiwan recognized dual, national, dual nationality, so many, many of my respondents can 
um, are they actually eligible for these social protection benefits? And many of them try to utilize these public benefits programs back home. So overall, I think that if we want to understand the experiences of older migrants who are long-term residents in a new society, we need to understand how they make sense of their life transitions in a transnational environment, how they are socialized in different countries, societies, and places, and how the changing transnational environment, how the changing transnational context shape their practices. Yeah, and then these three trajectories are very important in terms of the cultural identity formation and also the understanding how they position themselves transpacifically as well. And uh, with that, uh, I'm curious to hear more about when the aging migrants, they, uh, some of them decided to return back to Taiwan. And as you mentioned, actually, the Taiwan that they remember or the Taiwan that they, uh, where they were raised uh, and then educated in the early chapters in their lives are very different from the Taiwan that now they retire and return back to. So I was wondering, can you uh, say more a little bit about the returnees back to Taiwan and uh, how they negotiate their later life in Taiwan? And then um, with that, maybe also uh, compare uh, with the aging migrants who stay in the United States as well. Sure. Um, this is such a good question. I want to emphasize that when I started this project, I did not want to, I did not think about recruiting or interviewing older migrants uh, moving back to Taiwan. I don't even know uh, they exist. <laughs> Right. I don't I don't even think about because back then I was so young, I did not think about the possibility of returning to the homeland. But I realized that a lot of older migrants moving back home in the in the middle of my field work. So I think it, it will be interesting to um, to compare migrants who stay here with migrants who choose to move back to Taiwan. In part, um, because I think this comparative analysis will help us uh, help us understand uh, why people make certain choices or decisions and how their options and decisions are intimately tied to the resources they have. Um, of course, when we left a place and when, when, when we return, we realize a place is never the same. And this is particularly true with my respondents. The, on the one hand, they really like the develop, the social, cultural, and uh, economic development of Taiwan because they are given more options, right? If they move back home, their savings, their income go, goes a longer way because the cost of living in Taipei is much, much lower. They can hide, they can uh, move into long-term care facilities, which are much, much more affordable than those in the U.S. They can also hire migrant domestic workers from Southeast Asia, South Asia to care for themselves or their spouses. And again, doing so is much, much more affordable. And they can also utilize the infrastructures um, in Taiwan, right? They can take bus, they can take subway, they can take the high-speed railroad to visit their friends and visit different places. And those changes and developments are really, really ideal to my respondents. But at the same time, we cannot forget the fact that they are long-term residents in the U.S. So they actually have been re-socialized in the, in the United States. So after they move back to Taiwan, they feel there is a cultural mismatch, mismatch between themselves and Taiwan. Right. They criticize the media, they criticize the politics, they sometimes criticize the people, they, the local non-migrant people they encounter. A lot of times they display a sense of cultural superiority over the people and the, and the institutions they encounter in Taiwan. And in many ways, they represent themselves as more cosmopolitan more western more westernized people in comparison to local people they encounter right so 
it's really hard because I don't. I really love my respondents, but I also feel like they display a sense of American superiority over local people in many many ways. How older migrants here different from older migrants moving back to returning to Taiwan?、Uh, that is also a very good question. For older migrants here, they have they actually because they are long term migrants here, so they actually know the society, they know the place, they know、um, the space, they know how the society operates. They also have.、Uh, Long-term knowledge of immigrant organization institutions, they can turn to for help. They also can secure resources from their social networks here. So in one in my book, I I use the term knowing their place to describe how my respondents construct community community ties in the U.S. By contrast. Return migrants in Taiwan, they have to reactivate their social,、uh, reorganize their social networks, and reactivate a lot of social ties after they move back to Taiwan, and and this is what I call relearning their place, right? So I think that migration is an ongoing process, and when you stay for. A lot of times we think, oh, these older migrants, yeah, immigrant newcomers. But after spending thirty, forty, fifty years in the U.S., they are no longer newcomers. U.S. is no longer a quote-unquote foreign society to them. For them, Taiwan is, in many ways, a foreign homeland. Right? It's homeland, but it's also foreign. They need to reorganize their social life. They need to relearn the cultural norms,、uh, in their own homeland. Yeah, especially this、uh, decision-making process, as you mentioned, and then、uh, there's two different、uh, dimension, and one is uh, the uh,、um, communities they stay in the United States, as you say, knowing their place, so they know how to navigate the American society and how to、uh, look for different resources that they need. They know how the society operates. Well, on the other hand, the、uh, community who decided to go back to Taiwan, as you mentioned, relearning their place—that is to reactivate their uh, network, reactivate, uh, reactivate uh, their support、uh, net as well—to sort of、uh, try to、uh, get used to the new、uh, Taiwan, and then try to get used to the new system, and then the new.、Uh, Model of living, and even many of them, as you mentioned, cost of living, and also the convenience in Taiwan. But you also mentioned that there seems to be this kind of、uh, comparison, or this kind of like、uh, as if superiority that they、uh, see themselves compared to the、uh, locals. And、uh, with this,、uh, knowing their place versus relearning their place,、uh, in terms of the aging migrants, their decision to stay or to go back to Taiwan. So,、uh, my question next is about、uh, when we talk about Taiwan, and then specifically about the complexity in terms of the political landscape, but also the cultural landscape as well. And the question I have is especially about their place of origin. So you mentioned that nineteen sixty five. It's an important uh, moment when the uh, migrants they can bring their family, they can sponsor their family to United States. But when we talk about migrants or Han Chinese migrants from Taiwan. Um, Um, they can have different place of origin. Maybe they are from Taiwan, the island, or maybe they are Chinese expatriate as well. So I was wondering, do you see their place of origin、um, shape、uh, their decision or shapes the way that they negotiate their later life? Oh, this is such a great question.、Uh, because when when I talk about older Chinese migrants. They actually, many of them were born in different places. Some of them were born in mainland China, and as we know, there was a civil war in mainland China. So many, many mainland Chinese and their children relocated from mainland China to Taiwan in 
1949. And uh, but at the same time, a lot of Taiwanese migrants uh, I study, they were born in Taiwan, and their families have been staying in Taiwan for more than a hundred years, right? So when we talk about Taiwanese migrants, they are actually of heterogeneous uh, ethnic origins. And this place of origin where they were born deeply shaped their political judgment or their political orientations, especially during the past 10 years. The ruling party, the political regimes in Taiwan experienced several changes, right? If you know about Taiwan's politics in 2008 and 2012, uh, KMT, Kuomintang, Wang. Uh, in 2016 and 2020, DPP, Minjindang, Wang. Right? And they represent very, very different political parties. They have different visions for Taiwan's future. So for my respondents, um, I actually witnessed how their um, assessment of Taiwan's future changes when different political parties won the, elect- the presidential elections. And they form communities in different ways. They usually get together and gather together with like-minded people. So they are more likely to hang out with and uh, be friends with people who share similar political orientations. So political orient in the U.S. and both in the U.S. and Taiwan. So political orientation, homeland conflicts, and coverage matters tremendously. But at, at, at the same time. We also need to think about the, in addition to political judgment, political ideologies, we also need to think about the, the concrete needs these older people have. For many older people who decide to move back to Taiwan, they move back to Taiwan not because of their political ideologies, but because of the real-life uh, real needs they have, right? For example, they need care. They need to move into affordable long-term care facilities. And yes, they do care about politics. They make different friends. They have different friendship circles. But at the same time, I don't think this political orientation explains why they move back or don't move back to Taiwan. And let's not forget, uh, many of my respondents who were born in mainland China or their families uh, have deep connections to, to mainland China. They also... Grew, they, they also grew up in Taiwan. They also had, had classmates, friends, or even uh, spouses in Taiwan or from Taiwan. So at this stage, and more importantly, they were also the citizens of Taiwan rather than mainland China. So even if they want to move back to mainland China, that's very difficult because they don't have the citizenship. They also don't have the local household registration, right? Hukou. So it's for in many, many ways, it's just easier for those uh, uh, so-called mainland Chinese growing up in Taiwan to move back to Taiwan. It's feasible. And they also have social reasons to do so. Yeah, and then especially you mentioned that uh, their uh, place of origin uh, partly could be, you know, uh, uh, elements to uh, shape their political orientations. But I also appreciate you mentioned this keywords citizenship, because in a way that this citizenship, as you mentioned, uh, imply the different resources and opportunities they can tap in. For example, the uh, Taiwan's uh, social welfare uh um, medical support and care facilities, so on and so forth. So uh, definitely thinking about that. And um, so uh, my, uh, I'm really interested in the uh, aging population and then especially about uh, what you say, this kind of long-term consequences of their immigration. So I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about, I mean, uh, with your research, about what you find uh, after decades that they live in United States. Uh, what do we know and learn more about the immigrant adaptation and assimilation? Thank you for asking me these questions. Uh, I think it's very important to think about long-term migration and its effects, not just at individual level, but also at family level. Of course, they are long-term residents in the U.S., so they, they have to learn how to adapt Right. They have to learn English. They work, most of them work in American uh, companies. They make, have American colleagues. 
their children uh, go go to school in the U.S. Uh, they manage their everyday life in the U.S. So they need to learn how to live in the U.S. But at the same time, we also need to think about this uh, the effects of long-term migration, long-term residence in the U.S. at the family level. That is to say, their children and grandchildren grow up in the U.S. No matter we like it or not, their children and especially grandchildren are be, quote unquote, becoming American. They, that is to say the worldview of their children, their children's spouses and their grandchildren are basically and primarily oriented by the U.S. social and cultural norms. So for my respondents, they are the parents and grandparents of Americans. And they need to adapt, not just for their own survival, but also try to, but also in an effort to get along with their children, their children's spouses, and their grandchildren. So they have to learn how to manage their relationships with their children uh, who have their own families. When they need care, they need to adapt their expectations to what their children can do or their, what their children want to do. When they try to provide care for their grandchildren, they need to think about what's the right way, what's the socially acceptable way to do grandparenthood in American society. When they communicate with their spouses, they need to consider what's the social expectation of being an ideal partner to their spouses, right? So all the things affect their everyday life. And that is why I argue that uh, we need to understand how long-term uh, migration affect it, uh, the, experience, the identities and practices of my respondents in very, very intimate ways. Yeah, especially you mentioned this uh, family dimension and then the life transitions in the family dimension. And these transitions need to be contextualized and then specifically uh, contextualized with their Taiwanese background, but also America as a host society. And um, I really, um, this, the phrase here you use is very interesting. Like these Taiwanese migrants become Americans. I mean, I mean, their grandchildren become Americans. So they are grandparents of American kids and stuff. So I think this is very interesting to think about. They themselves have certain degree of assimilation or, if you will, Americanization. But the next generation, their experience is very different. And then these grandparents, they also need to uh, adapt. And then they also need to... Uh, deal with uh, this situation. So I think uh, you are totally right in terms of this life transition and how that is, as you mentioned, continuing process. So migration, immigration, not just uh, ended when you arrive on the other shore, but it's actually a process. It's a continuing journey and then with a different moment of life transition that you analyze so beautifully uh, in the book. Thank you. And I want to add one more thing. Um, I want to, in my book, I emphasize that a lot of, a lot of times my, when my respondents talk about Americanization, social and cultural assimilation, they actually reproduce and reinforce certain stereotypes about American society, i.e. their understanding of American societies and American social and cultural norms can be one dimensional, partial, or even misleading. But for example, they talk about, uh, oh, American cultural ideal, prioritize, privilege, nuclear families. That's true, but also partial because many American households are deeply embedded in extended family networks. And many American families struggle to provide care for older generations. And they also emphasize, oh, we are Chinese, we are Taiwanese, so we care for our grandchildren. Uh, we, we do things differently than Americans. But we also need to realize for many, our grandparents are important caregivers in many uh, disadvantaged families, right? Even in advantaged, advantaged families. But research shows that grandmothers in Latino and African-American and working class families play a central role for their children, uh, for their daughters, for their children. 
So my point is that a lot of times we do talk, we talk about cultural differences between Taiwan, between Chinese communities and the U.S. But I also want to realize in reality, things are much, much more complicated. At the same time, perception is reality because this is how my respondents understand and perceive American society, American social and cultural norms. And these perceptions orient their emotions, feelings, perspectives, and practices. And that is why sociologists often say that perception is reality, right? So no matter whether my respondents correctly understand American society, in some ways, that doesn't matter. Their stereotypical understanding of American, of American society still guide their everyday practices. Mm. And then you mentioned this, uh, how they understand uh, sometimes might be misleading or sometimes might be uh, totally uh, correct. But you mentioned that this is the reality. That's how they perceive the reality and that's how they understand uh, the context. And I think this may be uh, one of the, uh, partly one of the reason, you know, the uh, um, the process of uh, migration continues, right? Different perceptions. They could gain different perceptions as well with the different life transition that you mentioned in the book. So uh, thank you for this point. And uh, so also another aspect about aging migrants, uh, we mentioned a little bit previously, it's about their mobility. So they were able to travel uh, transnationally or specifically to Taiwan and uh, other different places. So with this mobility and also with this um, um, uh, ability to travel. So I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about how the aging population tell us about the transnationalism? And especially in your book, you mentioned that uh, age in place versus age transnationally. Thank you for asking this question. I think age and time play a central role in understanding transnational migration in several ways. First of all, what we most people decide to move to the U.S. for a reason or for several reasons, right? Pursuing education, receiving education, establishing a career, raising families for the sake of children, but when we get older, when we transition to a later phase of our lives, we rethink our priorities. Yes, initially, we moved to the U.S. to pursue education, raise children, establish a career. But after we retire, what are we going to do? How do we want to, this, how do we want to spend the remaining time of our lives? That has become something a lot of my, a lot of my respondents think about. And a lot of my respondents, after they retire from work, they have plenty of time because they no longer have to work and their children all grow up and have their own families and lives. So this is, I think, aging, later life stage is the period, is the phase where we think about our priorities and what we want to do, what we want to accomplish in our, in our lives. And I found that many older migrants, especially after, after they retire from work, they reactivate their ties to their ethnic communities or to their homeland. So I think that we need to think about how transnational ties, transnational connections evolve, vary, uh, develop at different points of people's lives. Second, as I mentioned earlier, I think it's very, it's tremendously important to think about the tempor tempor temporal variation of places, right? U.S. changed, Taiwan changed, China changed, right? So for my respondents, they need to think about their own futures uh, here or there. They also need to think about their children, their grandchildren's futures uh, here, there, or elsewhere, right? That is why a lot of my respondents emphasize the importance of learning uh, their grandchildren learning Mandarin Chinese because they believe given the rise of China, uh, Mandarin Chinese will become a very important a very important resource to have in the future. right? So I think that we need to think about transnational connections, trans transnational migrations in relation to both 
life stage, and the temporal variation of different societies, and how these factors combine and intersect and affect people's identities and practices. Right, especially the as you mentioned, the priority changes. Right, so earlier it's about them themselves, education or、uh, their、uh, job careers, and later on、uh, will be their kids raised in the United States, and later on you mentioned that、uh, about future. Uh, their grandkids, and also about you know、uh, what kind of vision that they have for their grandkids. In addition, for them themselves when they grow older,、uh, retired,、uh, so on and so forth. And、uh, with that, transnationally, transpacifically,、um, this topic of homeland that you mentioned earlier, and when we talk about the different place of origin and different.、Um, Political orientation as well, but I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit more about how do they see America? Do they see America as "quote unquote" their homeland as well, or how do they understand America for their long-term、uh, residency? Is this home, homeland, or home country? So,、um, yes, can can you tell us、uh, what your respondents、uh, told you? Very few of them call the U.S. their homeland, and many of them still emphasize their Taiwanese identity, emphasize the fact that they are from Taiwan. But at the same time, they also emphasize U.S. is a very important place. It's a very important society for them and their families. They basically their lives have they basically rewrite their individual biographies. Their life have、uh, after they move to the U.S. Their lives have become completely different after they arrive to the U.S. And their children and their grandchildren have become have different life trajectories because my respondents make a decision to move to the U.S. So I I would not say that they will. Uh, call the U U.S. their homeland, but most of them view U.S. of one of their homes. So U.S. has a very special place, and means something very special to my respondents. This is particularly the case with older migrants who decide to move back to Taiwan. Many of them told me that after they move back to Taiwan, they realize how "quote unquote" Americanized they have become, Be- because they notice differences. Salient, significant differences between themselves and the local people they encounter. So I think that、uh, this is very important to understand the impact of long-term migration on migrant transactions, not transnational、uh, connections to the homeland. But、right? on the one hand, they still admire their homeland, they still love their homeland. But at the same time, they also admit U.S. is their home, even if they know they don't, even if some of them. Don't want to live here any longer. Even if some of them move back home, but their children are still here. Their grandchildren are still here, right? So for them, U.S. has become one of their homes. And we are people. Like we can have more than one homes. We can have one more than one places we care, we value, we admire. Yeah, totally agree with you. You know,、uh, U.S. become their home, or specifically become one of their homes. As you mentioned, their connection and also their network, their ties could be、uh, multiple. Could be Taiwan, could be China, could be United States, or could uh, in uh, other contexts, not necessarily a national a model as well. So, with this question about、uh, their home, their homeland, so now I want to shift the dimension and especially now talk about home and then this kind of like family dynamic. So,、uh, I was wondering, can you tell us about these uh, aging uh, migrants? How they construct or reconstruct the、uh, intimacy and connection、uh, with their family or with their community members? Sure. Um, this is an important question, and this is these are central questions to my book. Yes, they do reconstruct intimacy with their families and with their communities in several ways. I want to use their relationship with children as an example. So, a lot of my respondents they reconstruct 
intergenerational intimacy. They reconstruct the reciprocal relations with their children in three ways. First of all, uh, as, as when they left Taiwan, they also left their, their own parents in the homeland, right? So the majority of my respondents did not bring their parents to the U.S., in part because the older generations don't want to move to the U.S., in part because the elder care services in the U.S. are not very affordable. So that many, of these, many of my respondents told me, well, I did not care for my own parents. How could I expect my children to care for me? I think that's a very convincing argument. Some of my respondents did bring their parents to the U.S. and they care for their own parents in the U.S. until their own parents pass away. But they also told me that doing so, it's very, very difficult. They have, um, first of all, the elder elder care services are expensive and when they take care of their, when they took care of their their own parents, they also uh, need to satisfy the career demands. They also need to take care take care of their own children. They are struggling with uh, the competing demands with childcare, career, and family. So basically, a lot of them told me that, well, taking care of older generations in the U.S. is very difficult and challenging, and they don't want their children to experience the same thing. Finally, they also emphasize that American societies emphasize individualism, emphasize independence rather than interdependence or uh, family collectivity, right? As I mentioned, this understanding of American society is too oversimplified, but that's their perception, that's their understanding. And with these different complex dimensions in mind, a lot of my respondents fashion their expectations of their fashion, their fashion, their expectations of their children. Traditionally, the notion of filial piety uh, emphasize Chinese uh, children in China, younger generation in Chinese families should care for older generations. But my respondents actually, in many ways, challenge the traditional practices embedded in the in the concept of filial piety. They actually understand intergenerational reciprocity and intimacy in different ways, or to be more, more precise, more Western, more Americanized ways. And so you can see that how social incorporation, cultural incorporation into American societies or their children's cultural incorporation into American societies change intimacy within Taiwanese American household as well as families. And I see the same thing with Taiwanese community. Right. Um, when they, when they as, as they retire from work, they realize man, they, they lose their connections to their American colleagues very quickly. So, but they still need friends. They still need a social life. So re, they reactivate their ties to co-ethnics. But again, social relationships are always stratified by gender, race, class, ethnic origins, and many, many um, stratifying forces we know, right? So even when my respondents organize, even when these older migrants in the U.S. organize their post-retirement lives, they think about, well, homeland publics, who do I want to hang out with, right? Even sometimes I need to see, encounter uh, socialize, we interact with people I politically disagree with. I need to devise strategies to handle those occasions, handle those situations. And more importantly, they organize uh, their social life along the lines of political orientation and also um, migration traje- trajectories. I found that older migrants who move to the U.S. as student migrants and have a professional career trajectories are more likely to hang out with one another because they have similar life experiences. They have a lot of uh, conversational topics in common. They also have more uh, more similarities with one another, right? And a lot of working, a lot of uh, 
older migrants who came here through family sponsorship or as labor migrants, they reported they have met uh, a lot of contempts from prof- of Taiwanese migrants of professional class background or uh, middle class background. And I think that has a lot to do with uh, their different experiences and their the different privilege and entitlements they have and how they are how they come here and how they are incorporated into American society. So I think all these factors explain uh, why aging is such a complicated issue. Yeah, and especially as you mentioned, and also analyzing the book, the different strategy, different decision, and also different action that these uh, aging migrants, they have to take uh, in the later part of uh, life in terms of reformulating the uh, social uh, network and also to think about the concept of filial piety, interaction with the kids, and also with the uh, grandkid as well. All right. So uh, um, anything you would like to add about the book? I don't know where to start. There is a lot I want to say, uh, but I think you asked all, <laughs> ask all the important questions I cover in the book. All right. So I guess that's a great uh, transition uh, to the uh, last part of our uh, interview. So for uh, Ken, I know there's a lot of things you want to add and uh you know, also a lot of great uh, case study that we actually can unpack. And I would encourage readers definitely pick up this book and then read the fascinating case studies and beautiful an- analysis that can't include it in the book. There's actually something I just think of. Can I? Yeah, add? sure. Yeah, mm-hmm, sure. Uh, there are several things I want to emphasize. So first of all, I believe it's very important to pay attention to the experiences of long-term migrations, right? Like, for example, how they learn um, new cultural schemas in the processes of international relocation and in the transnational context, how these cultural perceptions and schema enable them to mark and carve out interpersonal and social and symbolic boundaries and how these boundary setting practices are intimately and intricately tied to their feelings and emotions. And I think that these are the important issues we all have to think about. I also think that to understand aging, aging in general and aging, aging and migration in particular, we need to situate these aging experiences in a transnational environment, right? For example, there are different types of homeland, right? My colleague, Alastair Hunter, studied uh, older African immigrants in France. For many of these African immigrants, they don't want to return to their homeland to utilize, to retire there, to spend the last life stage there, right? Because they want, they prefer to use the medical services and the public benefits in France. Right? So there are different types of homeland. Not everybody can return to their homeland. right? And homeland also have different immigration and citizenship policies. Some countries recognize or even welcome uh, dual citizens, right? Taiwan, Korea. But there are also societies who don't accept dual nationalities, like, for example, China, Singapore. right? So we need to think about there are different types of homeland, and there are also different types of hostland. Right. In the U.S., it's really hard to uh, bring your entitlement, uh, entitlement to social entitlements to another society. But in some whole societies, such as in the Netherlands, they actually facilitate the portability of social benefits to another society. Right. So for older migrants, if you want to move to another society in Europe, it's easier. Right, because it's EU, EU uh, within the EU system, it's just easier to bring your benefits to another society. And some countries like Netherlands, they actually help 
older migrants to return to their homeland or move to another society. So we need to, so I think that understanding these different homeland hostland interactions will help us understand the experiences of aging immigrants more clearly. Yeah, especially this book studies aging and also the aging population in both the national but also the transnational model as well. As you mentioned, the citizenship, the uh, social welfare policies in the uh, homeland, but also in the host land, the immigration policy, and also the experience of assimilation in the host society. So this is about this book, but uh, Ken, can you share with us what you're working on now and then maybe your next project? Sure, I'm working on uh, several projects right now. And there are two projects I want to mention here. Uh, I'm currently studying transnational families from mainland China. So between 2016 and 2019, I conducted more than 100 interviews with uh, left-behind parents, i.e. parents who have children moving abroad right, in, in, in China. I also study family caregivers and pay caregiver uh, in China. So the caregivers, family or pay caregivers who care for the left-behind aging parents uh, in China. Between 2018, and I'm still doing this, uh, and, 2000, and 2020, I am interviewing and studying Chinese migrants in the U.S. And in this project, I pay close attention to how transnational family members, parents, stay-behind caregivers, and migrants in the U.S. handle transnational family crisis. Initially, I want to see, I want to explore, understand how they cope with parental health decline or parental death. And then COVID happened. So I am conducting interviews with Chinese immigrants uh, to see how they handle this crisis moments in a transnational context. Another project uh, I'm working on is about transnational social protection and precarity. In this project, I co-authored with Professor Peggy Levy, my colleague Eric Hodop, and Rosendra Paul, uh, which is a cross-national comparison. So basically, we are looking at how migrants in different national contexts secure the support they need transnationally, not just in their whole society, not just in their countries of residence, but also in other national contexts, right? We talk about medical tourism, we talk about uh, labor protection. And for this part, this, and this book will be forthcoming at Oxford University next year. So in this book, we talk about life stage, we talk about children and their parents, we talk about uh, medical care seeker, we talk about, we talk about labor migrants, we talk about uh, educational migrants, we talk about uh, older migrants, different types of older migrants, and we compare and analyze how these different types of migrants construct a safety net, more specifically, transnational cross-border safety net for themselves and for their loved ones. And these are the two projects I'm working on right now. That sounds great. And then uh, it's amazing to know that uh, the uh, conversation and also research uh, uh, continues as well, and then there is a forthcoming publication uh, as well. So uh, with all that, uh, Ken, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it too. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure and honor. And I want to thank you, our audience, for uh, listening to the end and being with us here today. So take care, stay safe, see you next time.